haven't met, my name is Jeremiah Aha, and I'm excited for two reasons. Reason number one is I got to get up and get ready and go somewhere this morning. Remember what that was like? Like getting ready, like going to a place, uh, me not wearing just shorts and house shoes. It was exhilarating. The drive here was like, oh, man. So I'm very excited to be here, number one. And number two, the second reason is because of this. For some of you, I'm a familiar face. Um, about six years ago, I was a guest speaker and had a chance, the, the privilege to lead Emmaus Community with you all as a guest speaker. And then over time, have helped um, serve with the staff here. And um, now, over this past year, myself and my wife, Lindsay, our two girls, Bella and Lucy, who are at home right now, I hope, which is awkward to think that they're watching me on our TV right now. Um, nevertheless, now we call this place home for the past year. This is a very interesting kind of dynamic for me because this is a place where there's no kind of formalized role on a, on a church staff, which um, until just about five years ago, 15 years of my life was in full-time ministry. I was a youth pastor, um, young adult, um, was involved in church planning, and I'm speaking at camps and conferences and that kind of thing. And so the idea of coming to a place or logging on to a place once a week and participating in worship and then being here is new and fresh, and it's something that is quite unique. So I'm very excited. Thank you for the, the opportunity and the privilege. There's just a handful of people here, which you can't see, but thank you all for what you've been doing. Um, I know the ahas of love snuggling up on the couch with blankets and um, being able to, to engage in worship that way. And so I'm glad to be here with you. So wherever this finds you this morning, whether it's on the couch or um, at the dining room table, or maybe you just have your phone on your lap in your bed, or there's an iPad and you have earbuds, or you're in your car, wherever this finds you right now, whatever's around you in this present moment, know that the shalom of God is there with you. It's there with you. And with that, join me as we walk through uh, John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, if you have another device there with you, um, launch that or open it up. We're going to be walking through John chapter 20, and now that we're going to start in verse 19. And as far as day-to-day, -day, real quick about me, day-to-day -day when I'm not here um, doing things, but what I'm doing in shorts and house shoes, usually at home, is helping um, with an organization that provides mental health services um, to students across the state of California. And I'm a therapist now, and so going back to grad school again to get a master's in psychology was interesting, but um, definitely God is at work in that place as well. He's not confined to this place. He's not confined just to this particular website. He is at work always. He's always making things new. So it's a gift, once again, to be here with you today. And I'm kind of going to be playing tour guide. We're going to walk through John 20, 19 through 29. And I'm going to be pointing out a few things along the way. And we're going to land at kind of our end destination, which is kind of the, whoa, kind of like the biggest rubber band ball in the country kind of landmark on our road trip. Okay? But hopefully much more exciting than that. So John chapter 20. Let's begin in verse 19 as we continue this series called Now What? And if you're just joining us, this is a, uh, a look at several scenes or snapshots in the life of Jesus after resurrection, after Easter. The, the appearances that he made, and these are the snapshots throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of, of his life. And so this brings us this Sunday morning to John chapter 20, verse 19. 
on the evening of that first day of the week. So think Easter dinner time. When the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, let's pause real quick, just something something to note. Jesus came and stood among them. We don't see in this passage, and Jesus knocked on the door, and the disciples came to the door frightful and said, who is it? And Jesus says, Jesus of Nazareth, (laughs) the Messiah, like it's me, let me in. He's just there. He just appears So the writer of John here makes a note to say that the doors are closed, the doors are locked, and Jesus all of a sudden is in the room there with them. And before we go and get like, man, that's amazing, may we not forget the larger point that he has risen from the dead. A little more impressive than he's just there in the middle of the room. So he's there standing among them, and he says the traditional Jewish greeting, peace be with you. Or you might be familiar with the word in Hebrew, shalom. Shalom, he said. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Showed him the scars, or previously where there were wounds in his hands, where he was nailed to the cross, where he was pierced by the spear in his side. Kind of showed his ID, it's really me. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, to camp out on this word, shalom, or in Greek, arene, this is the most potent and pregnant word in all of Scripture, in my opinion. It's the most power-packed, meaning-filled word in all of Scripture. And we get it translated, it's kind of a cheap translation just to say, peace be with you. This only is like a sliver of what this word actually means. Peace not so much as in the absence of conflict or the absence of fighting or war or chaos. Not so much that, but it is God's idea of complete and total restoration, of wholeness, Sometimes we get close to it by saying perfection, but for us here in the Western culture, perfection means without blemish or without error. It doesn't quite get to it. Shalom is the sense of making all things right. This is when Jesus says, thy kingdom come. Like Jesus, or Father, make all the broken places in this world whole again, this shalom of God. Now, we see it throughout the Old Testament, not just in our relationship with God, but also in places like where Israel is building up their city walls. So think of this image of like a fence or a brick wall, and there's some bricks that are missing. There's some wall that is torn down. So when this last brick goes up into that place, they say that shalom is restored. It is complete. It is whole. It is everything as God would desire. Maybe in our context, specifically for kind of COVID-19 context, I hear that puzzles are really on the rise, and you can't find them. They're really just sold out. Amazon and Target and everywhere else, puzzles are hard to find. And for all the puzzlers out there, you're thinking, finally, people understand the excitement around puzzles. But it's that feeling that you get. I think there's a few puzzlers here in the crowd here. Um, Maybe even you at home. But that feeling that you get, whether you've done a puzzle this week or when you were a child or some other time you remember, or maybe even if you've seen a puzzle, that feeling that you have when that last piece goes into the puzzle, whether it's 10 pieces or 1,000 pieces, that feeling of, 
Ah, that right there. Think of that as a tiny fraction of the shalom of God. Everything is as it should be. Everything is whole and restored. And Paul writes that Jesus made shalom when he died and rose again. Later he writes that Jesus himself is our shalom. So Jesus comes in and says shalom, this traditional greeting, which wasn't just, just hey, a, a traditional customary greeting, but there's something, something else that Jesus is saying because, remember, this is the first day of the week, the first day of the new creation. As If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that the book of John begins with in the beginning. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that in Genesis, our entire story begins with in the beginning. So there's parallels that are made throughout, kind of a nod back to the Genesis story. And so here the writer again on the first day of the week, and here's Jesus, the shalom, where shalom was restored and perfect before, before Genesis 3. Another thing to point out, shalom arrives, Jesus arrives, as I just kind of took the past few minutes to explain what shalom looks like and the images that come to mind. It's very interesting to note, Jesus still has scars. There's still something that we would say is imperfections or blemishes or, or things that aren't quite right. There's something to this, that shalom enters, that he has a resurrected body. Three days ago, friends, don't forget, he was killed in a gruesome and public and humiliating way, and now he's alive, and there's wounds that are still showing. Even with the presence of shalom, they're still there. There's still scars. Well, why, why is this significant? What, what's remarkable about this? Maybe, just maybe. The scars and the bumps and the bruises and the trials of life and the suffering and pain that we have gone through, those are there to point others to the Father. That we are called as the people of Shalom, as the people of God, to to not hide our wounds or to be embarrassed about those or to try and act like we have it all together, but rather to talk about the times when, when we have failed because that will then point others to the Father. One of, our, one of my favorite kind of heroes of the faith is Henry Nouwen, and he writes, the main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame, remember when we hide? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They hid they covered themselves because they felt shame. When our, weans, when our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. So even when the shalom of God is restoring us day by day, it may not take away all the wounds, all the bumps and bruises and suffering, the evidence of that that we've gone through, and maybe that's there to point others closer to God. Verse 21. Again, Jesus says, Shalom. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I think the reason why he says Shalom again is because that next sentence, though it sounds comforting and it makes for a good kind of refrigerator magnet for Christians, it's actually a very scary sentence. 
in the same way, in the same manner, just like the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Where Jesus was ultimately sent was to die on the cross. He was sent to his death. So I think Jesus says this because he's like, don't be afraid. Shalom. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We see specifically throughout John's gospel that, that, that God is a missionary God. He's a sending God. Jesus is referred to many times as the sent one. Jesus talks about how often the Father has sent him. And, and right here once again, just as I have been sent, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you've forgiven anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. This morning, this is your permission. If you feel like you need to have it, this is your permission to know that you've already been sent by God. You've already been sent. And this is an interesting context to kind of to share that because many of us are kind of like, well, where am I going to go? Like, I can't go anywhere. I just have to be here. But in a larger sense, we think that maybe it's just those that God sends overseas that he's at work with or to another country or, or to a, a distant place that's unfamiliar. Maybe, just maybe, and by that I mean, yes, he has. God has already sent us as his people. We are the gathered people and we are the sent people of God. Just as the Father has sent Jesus, he has sent us. If you're waiting for permission to be an agent of the kingdom of God, this is the wake-up call this morning for you. If you're waiting for someone to endorse your giftedness or your talents or what you bring to those around you, this is your permission this morning. He has already given it to us long ago. This is kind of the commissioning of Jesus to the disciples. The disciples here and for you at home or wherever this may find you, you're a fully authorized agent of the kingdom of God a carrier of God's shalom already. And we find that, that, this, that the, the mission of the kingdom of God is very closely linked and relies on the Holy Spirit. As Jesus breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. And what's central to this mission as well is the forgiveness of others, complete and total restoration for the walls that have been broken down between us and other people. That's very central to what God is trying to do to repair those things. So this is another moment within new creation. Remember, in the beginning, God created. And when he created Adam, we see in Genesis 2 that he breathed into his nostrils. And life was breathed into, into humankind, and we were born. And as we see here in John, he breathes on the disciples. This Greek word of, of pneuma, of breath, of spirit. And there's life here again. Jesus breathes onto the disciples, and this is like an, an ushering of a new chapter, a new age, a new creation that Jesus sets the mark on. This is where it gets good. Verse 24. Verse 24. Now Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, referring to one of the twelve disciples, or we might assume that there was actually eleven or ten there at the time, and so Thomas wasn't there with them. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. No need for us to read into it and to shame Thomas. Why wasn't he there? He was probably out doing... John doesn't give us any explanation or commentary about it. I don't think we should either. He just wasn't there. 
One time years ago, I asked one of my mentors, does everything in the Bible have meaning, like every single number, every single syllable, every single word? And he said, yes, it does, but not all of it carries the same weight of meaning. So sometimes, for example, to zoom in on Didymus, Didymus is this word that we can get translated as twin, or sometimes it gets translated as in double or double-minded or divided. And so this kind of begins this story, this narrative of Thomas, that he was double-minded, that he was, he was thinking in two different directions, and we'll get to more of this. But maybe just maybe it meant that he was a twin. How about that? How about just he was a twin? Can it be just that? Not everything has to have a level 10 meaning in Scripture. There are some things that have significant, significant meaning. I don't want to overlook that. Or to, or to understate that. But there are some times, particularly like this, where we as the church have created our own stories to fit our own agendas, and we'll take a look at how I think that may be happening. So Thomas isn't there, also known as Didymus, and Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They said, we've seen him. He's alive. We've seen him. It was really him. It was really, really him. I promise. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. And right here begins this this story of something that you won't find in Scripture. Search all that you want. You will not find these two words in Scripture. And it's something that you're probably familiar with. And here we go. Drum roll, please. Doubting Thomas. You will not find that in Scripture. And by that I mean it's not there. We, as the, as the early church, we as the contemporary church, have placed that label onto Thomas as a way to maybe to villainize or to shame or to say this is how you shouldn't be. You shouldn't doubt. Look, he needed proof in order to see Jesus. He didn't have enough faith in order to believe that Jesus rode again. Oh, his name Didymus, this means divided. That probably means that a divided mind. That probably means that he believed, but he didn't believe. Let's not be like, quote, doubting Thomas. Hold the brakes and pump the brakes too. Hold on. Let's, let's take a look back. Verse 19 and 20, Jesus showed his side and his hands to the disciples. After that, they believed. After he said this, he showed them his hands and, and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed. So he, if we're going to put these, if we're going to try and separate these, they have to be on the same plane because Thomas, too, wanted that same level of proof. He wanted that same level of identification. So before we say these 10, they were the superheroes of the faith in Thomas, doubting Thomas. He didn't quite get it. No, 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 no. They both had this. They were on the same level. So before we romanticize and we make heroes of the 10 and try and lower down Thomas, just know even right here, according to John, it was the same circumstances. It wasn't until after Jesus showed him that they recognized him. So you will not find that in Scripture. The story continues a week later. So this is next Sunday night, the Sunday night after Easter. They're all gathered together again. The disciples and Thomas was there with them. And though the doors were locked, he he does it again. Jesus came and stood among them. No knock, knock, no who's there, no it's me really. 
no peephole. Jesus is just there once again. And what does he say again? Shalom. He says, peace be with you. John gets kind of, it's almost like nursery rhyme, right? Like there's a repetition, there's a liturgy, there's a rhythm to this. He wants us to, to see the similarities and the differences in these stories. He's a master storyteller. So Jesus is there again. Before we get to just a real, real good part, what I love about this is Jesus goes back to the one that wasn't there last week. In the same way that we see throughout Scripture, this idea where Jesus is painted or God or the kingdom of God is painted as the shepherd that goes after the one that wandered away. What we see here, it looks as if the only reason, and we can't assign too much motivation for this, but from, from what we see here, this suggests that Jesus goes back just for Thomas. Jesus approaches him. In the doubt and the disbelief, Jesus goes to him. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So Jesus is there and he addresses just Thomas. In any other story, it might be typical or acceptable for us to see that the, that the wise sage or the teacher or the, the prestigious person comes into the room and shuns the one that doesn't believe him. That, that throws shade, that has passive-aggressive remarks to the one who didn't believe him. But no, Jesus comes in the same way in Luke where the father comes to the son, not to shame or condemn, but he goes to him in love and gives Thomas the opportunity to believe even more. Look, see, it is really me. And we find that Thomas doesn't need to touch his side, doesn't need to put his hand there, doesn't need to, to, to touch the hands and the wounds of Jesus. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Which when we see these words paired together, this is synonymous in the Old Testament as Yahweh. As the Lord God. Which this is one of the very few times in the New Testament where someone has done this. Not, not just my Lord and not just by God, but, but both. So Thomas has this cry, that this proclamation of belief he doesn't need to see and we, or he doesn't need to touch because we find that Jesus said, because you have seen me, not because you have touched my wounds, because you have just seen me. Again, the same thing that happened with the disciples, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus goes to Thomas. He doesn't exclude him. He doesn't shun him. He doesn't give him a lesson. He goes to him with the opportunity for his belief, for his faith to be increased in the midst of his doubts. So this morning, especially in the, in the contemporary context right now, if there's doubts, if there's struggles, if there's questions, if there's anger, Jesus still wants to meet with you in that space. He still offers restoration, healing, wholeness in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of the questioning, just in the same way as he does with Thomas. Because belief isn't like an on and off switch, on and off switch. Like once we became a follower of Jesus, oh, the switch turned on. But before that, the switch was turned off. 
It doesn't work like that, and it's not necessarily an opinion or a theological perspective. We see that even within the words of John. As, as John 1 and John 2, we find that they put their faith in him after Jesus turns water into wine. But then a few chapters later, before Jesus feeds the 5,000, one of the disciples says, how are we going to do that? This is going to take like eight months' wages. But they've been traveling with him for some time, and they've already seen this miracle over here. Belief is more of a dimmer switch. It's more of a slowly, like, like a continuum, like a, like a proximity between us and Jesus, like how close we are. Because he, here's a question that might keep you wondering throughout this day or throughout this week. At what point can we say the disciples were Christians? At what point were we like, they are the followers of God or the followers of Jesus? Because we find up until even the last meal, Peter says, I will die for you, come to find out he denies him. So we find that our faith and belief has, has nooks and crannies and there's, and there's kind of a dimmer switch to it. It isn't just an on or an off. So even in the midst of doubt, that does not qualify you to be at the table with Jesus. With your questions and your struggles, he still welcomes those. Jesus still goes to us. There's a scene in Thomas that, that bears, bears noting where he has another role of some words that, that you might be familiar with. It's John chapter 14. And if you can turn it quickly as, as we close to highlight something. Jesus is speaking, and many theologians say that 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is like the last meal, like the last time he's there with his disciples. And so Jesus is talking to them, and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. So it's those 10 plus Thomas plus Judas all sharing a meal, right? The Last Supper as we know it. And Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you with me. That you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And then there's this pause. And then Thomas says something. And I imagine after Jesus gets done, you have 11 other men or, or teenagers, as some scholars would say, just kind of nodding and smiling as Jesus says, you know the place of where I'm going? And they're like, hmm, yeah, yeah. And Thomas is the only one that speaks up. Thomas is the one that says, wait, we don't know where you're going. Just to be clear, all these guys are nodding and smiling like they get it. We don't know. We don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. If Thomas doesn't say this, then we don't get one of the most central lines of Jesus to the faith. And this is when he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Thomas speaks up. Thomas and his doubts and his struggles and his questions are welcome to the table. And without Thomas, without our doubts, we don't have a door to be open to usher into a deeper and wider and richer faith. It is Thomas and his questions that give us a glimpse into a way to believe deeper into Jesus, the Messiah. If he doesn't say, these guys are posing, we don't know. Where are you going? If he doesn't say that then we don't get that. So this morning, our doubts have a place at the table. 
you're welcome here. In the midst of uncertainty, Jesus still approaches us to continue the restoration of all things. So wherever this finds you once again in an emotional place of, of doubt or fear or struggle, Jesus is there offering his shalom today and always in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're going to go into a little bit of a time of intermission, as I say. And so during, during these few minutes, this is what we call the passing of the peace. So if you have those around you gathered in your home or in wherever you're staying, take some time to greet them. Tell them that may the shalom of God be always with you. If, if you happen to find yourself um, alone um, in the place where you're at this morning, uh, send a text, give a phone call, send a picture, reach out to someone and say, may the shalom of God be always with you. We'll be back in a few moments. Thank you, friends.